you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. LAS Studios. We worked with a contractor who actually works in uh, counterterrorism, who basically is a giant bomb nerd. His whole day is about building bombs and building homemade explosives and really does not love that movies never get those details right. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm John Horn. Today on the show, how to blow up a pipeline, but not literally. We talked to director, co-writer Daniel Goldhaber and actor and co-writer Ariella Barrer. They are the creators of an explosive new film about a group of young environmental activists on a mission to sabotage an oil pipeline. And later, how a potential Oscars rule change meant to boost moviegoing could hurt some small independent distributors. Also, I'll take you on an audio vacation to the hot desert for some seriously cool art. Up first, though, my chat about the film How to Blow Up a Pipeline, based on the book of the same name by Andreas Malm. How to Blow Up a Pipeline has been getting a lot of attention, not just because of its provocative title, it's a lively, suspenseful movie. The creators, Daniel Goldhaber and Ariel Barrer, took on a challenging task. They had a nonfiction book about historical movements that rejected pacifism and why violence is now essential to save the planet. But they wanted to make a thriller for general audiences, not a more revolutionary update of Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. So, Ariella, I want to ask you about the adaptation. What were the guiding principles in fictionalizing what is a nonfiction tome about action and about change of tactics? First of all, we were discussing the politics of it, of course, and that being Daniel coming in pretty hot, wanting to make a piece of propaganda. And, you know, I had some pushback on that idea. You know, if we're going to do something that is released into a more mainstream audience, then we have to be responsible with the message we send out to people who might not have the context of having engaged with these ideas already, um, the way people who are maybe like reading Andres's book are engaging. But also um, narratively, just kind of the hook for us was what if it was us and our friends who went and did this? What would that look like? What would the circumstances have to be for us or people we know to get to this point? Something else that I think was another kind of guiding principle is I think that, and this was maybe the first conversation we had about it, is that I think that there is a tendency in storytelling to be extremely conservative and 
to tell stories about leftism or revolution, especially in a contemporary context that are failures, and to also engage in political ideas like these in a way that is niche, that is abstract, that is often very cynical. And I think that something else that I think was a, a guiding light for us was wanting to tell a story about an act of contemporary revolution that wasn't a tragedy, wanting to tell a story and engage with some fairly radical ideas in a way that would allow an audience to feel like they were familiar and accessible. And I think that that doesn't delegitimize all of the other kind of leftist work out there, but it's a question of how do you take those things and make them accessible to a mainstream audience? Because I think that if on the left, we continue to tell stories in a way that's niche, we're going to continue to send the message that leftism and progressivism is only a niche cultural identity. And I think that we have to expand that footprint. I think one of the points of the book itself is that there are so many people who assume revolution won't work when in fact history shows that it does work. I want to play a scene from the movie. This is set in a bookstore where two of your characters encounter each other and one of them has a book in his hands. It's got some good shit. Doesn't teach you how to do it though. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's for school? Something? Nah, I just want to learn. Might be headed to Texas for the winter. What's in Texas? This project. Might be looking for some collaborators. What kind of project? What kind of project? Well, the book is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and as your character says, it doesn't tell you how to do it. In your film, you have characters who are trying to figure out, and let's just say they have some ideas of how to do it. How did you go about researching that without getting into trouble with the, I think it's now the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Bombs, I think, or Explosives? We worked with consultants, one of whom is a contractor who actually works in uh, counterterrorism, um, who basically is a giant bomb nerd and is one of those guys, you know, his whole day is about building bombs and uh, building homemade explosives and really um, does not love that movies never get those details right. And I think saw this as his opportunity to help walk us through the way that it would actually realistically be done. Um, but we also consulted with a pipeline expert to try to figure out how our characters might destroy uh, an active liquid petroleum pipeline without causing a massive ecological incident. Not that long ago, I spoke with somebody in the movement, the real movement, um, I won't use his name. You probably know who it is, but I'm going to quote this person because it was not an on-the-record quote. And what this person told me, I'm quoting them now, is what we've been doing all along is nothing more than advanced vandalism. We need to use military tactics because there's no time left and nothing else has worked. Is there part of that revolutionary spirit in your sense of storytelling and your call as artists to tell a story like this? I get nervous about comparing myself to an activist who is doing work on the ground because quite simply we didn't do that. But there is so much to the idea of cultural production as a means for pushing the movement. It is absolutely at a time where we at least need to be talking about this. We at least need to be discussing these ideas in a bigger way and empathizing at least with the people who are putting themselves on the line 
people can come to it with an understanding of, of why this sort of rebellion might be necessary. Daniel, I want to ask you, in your biography, you talk about your parents, who are, I think, climate scientists, how that informed your way of thinking about the environment and the planet and how that has translated into your priorities as a storyteller. Yeah. So both of my parents have worked in climate science um, for 15 years, my mom for my entire life. And so I very much grew up with the doom of climate change hanging over me and with, you know, an extraordinary awareness of what was happening to the planet, but also an awareness of the kind of political and social failures that were allowing climate change to take root in the way that it has. But even more significant to me was, you know, my first jobs in film were actually working on climate change documentary, part of very much the awareness industry that uh, grew up in, in, in the kind of early 2010s. And there was definitely a point in time where it was very important to spread awareness about climate change. But even then, I was, you know, 16 or 17. It was very clear to me that there was a, a giant messaging failure where we were talking about raising awareness for climate change, but there was never any solution being proposed. It was essentially write your congressperson as long as you agree that this exists, it'll just work itself out. And I think that that was a very alienating experience for me because I was kind of perpetually saying, you know, I don't think that that's going to work. We clearly live in a broken political system. We have to be trying to use this awareness to push people in a direction of actual change. And that was not really heard. And I think that one of the reasons was that a lot of that culture that was being created at that point in time was very much corporate financed, was very much following a corporate model of incremental change and incremental social change that has allowed fossil fuel companies to continue to destroy the planet uh, while we very, very gradually try to address this problem. And so I think that in the wake of COVID, which was probably truly the first global climate event, uh, it's important to recognize that COVID is climate. Uh, that widespread pandemic is one of the things that is being predicted on a warming uh, planet. And, and we have to start moving the conversation towards what we're going to do about it, how we're going to force the system to change. There are people who could read this book or watch this movie who say, yes, time to do something. I want to get on board. There could be people who say, I'm not yet ready to be a revolutionary, but I wanna do something different than what I've done so far. To that latter group, what are your teachable moments? I think that it's about looking at your life and figuring out how one can engage in the ecosystem of action on your own terms. That might be joining a community garden. That might be changing one's diet. That might be, you know, putting your job at an oil company, uh, that might be engaging in direct action. There are a lot of individual things that can happen, but I think that the thing that needs to be kept squarely in mind is that this nevertheless needs to be a systemic overhaul. And we need to stop blaming ourselves individually for something that is a systemic problem and figure out how we can all individually contribute to changing the system. How to Blow Up a Pipeline is in theaters now. Next, gigantic art installations in the California desert. It's a breathtaking sight. I'll take you there after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Elias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Let's leave Hollywood for a moment and talk about a different kind of art. Big, massive pieces of art, not little paintings you'd find in a museum. I'm talking about Desert X, a biennial art installation in the Coachella Valley. I just traveled there, and you should consider a visit too, if you can make it. As you drive east from Los Angeles into the Coachella Valley, you pass between the snow-covered summits of San Gregorio and San Jacinto. Soon, wind farms start to crop up, row after row of giant propellers spinning. Then, there's not much besides desert and railroad tracks. Thanks to the frequent rains, the valley floor is carpeted in wildflowers, and every 30 minutes or so, a long freight train rumbles by. Up ahead, it looks like there's been yet another derailment. A pile of shipping containers is leaning every which way, not far from the railroad tracks. But as you draw closer, you realize it's not an accident. In fact, it's a huge work of outdoor sculpture. It's called Sleeping Figure. The boxcars welded together form a giant human-like body at rest. Is from Los Angeles artist Matt Johnson. I always wanted to position it along the freeway, the freight rail, and I wanted the mountain as a backdrop because the figure becomes like a, an actor on a stage and it becomes almost like a, like a painting. A little further east off Interstate 10, there's an abandoned hotel with a swimming pool. And whatever is in the pool is making a very strange sound. The pool is filled with 20,000 gallons of toxic water from the nearby Salton Sea. And in its deep end is a hollow metallic scale model of a blue whale's heart. That sound? Through a solar-powered electrical chemical reaction, the water's pollutants are bonding to the heart, giving it a new coating as the water turns clearer and clearer over the weeks of its installation. The piece, called The Smallest Sea with the Largest Heart, is by the other L.A. artist participating in Desert X. She's Lauren Bond, and her work is often focused on the use and reuse of water. When we make works with water, especially salt water, we make works about our bodies. And when we bring in the heart as a metaphor for a hydraulic pump, we also Think about the condition with which the water is delivered to us, this vast hydraulic network of the Intermountain West. Several times in the evening, 
The sculpture is lifted out of the water by a pulley system. It's art and environmental repair in real time. Desert X runs through May 7th. Admission is free, but some exhibits require timed admissions. For more information, go to desertx.org. Coming up, my weekly chat with LAist 89.3 Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back. Time for my entertainment news chat with Elias 89.3 Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. We started out the week with news that negotiators for the Writers Guild of America have called on members to take a strike authorization vote next week. What's behind that? So talks between the Writers Guild and TV and film producers started a couple weeks ago. The contract with the Writers Guild and the producers expires May 1st. The Writers Guild says they haven't made material progress. And while some people think the strike authorization vote was going to come anyway, it does probably add some leverage to the Writers Guild bargaining position. Last time there was a strike authorization vote in 2017, 96.3% of Guild members voted for it. It means that if the contract expires in May, the Guild can immediately uh, go on a work stoppage or strike and they don't need to have another vote. And what about the changing entertainment economics landscape is uh, putting these two forces in opposition? Well, the Writers Guild say that pay has dropped about 14% over the last five years. Part of the problem is that legacy TV networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, when they would order a show, they do about, you know, two dozen episodes of a series. Streamers now do about half as many. Maybe it's 10. Residuals in streaming are less than they are in network television, and they're not as many kind of ancillary sales. So the income stream is limited. At the same time, the people on the other side of the bargaining table, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, their members have competing interests too. There are streamers who don't really care about broadcast TV. There are broadcast networks that don't care about streaming. There are companies like Disney that have their toe in pretty much every business. Companies like Sony that don't have a streaming platform. So it is very complicated because the producers don't have an organized theme where they are all in agreement. So 
I've talked to a number of people. They think a strike is likely. And if the writers go on strike, it could be that the Directors Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, of which you and I are members, would go out as well. And that would put an immediate halt to production. There are a lot of shows in the can. So viewers might not notice, you know, an impact of a strike in TV till the fall. But if there is a strike, it could have serious implications and cost a lot of people a lot of jobs very soon. I'm speaking with the arts and entertainment reporter here for LAist about the Writers Guild of America calling for a strike authorization vote next week by its members. They are currently in negotiation still with the Hollywood studios. Meantime, there have also been some other important conversations in Hollywood, and these are about the Oscars. John, what has been the focus of those talks? Well, during the pandemic, the Academy changed the rules for eligibility. You didn't have to open a film in theaters. You could open it on a streaming platform because theaters were closed and qualify for the Oscars. Now they're going the other direction. And they're asking studios and distributors if a film to be eligible would have to play 20 or so markets as opposed to one as it currently stands. A lot of people interpreted that as an attack on Netflix. It doesn't really hurt them because if you look at the numbers, their films in last year's Oscars, All Quiet on the Western Front, played in nearly 600 theater locations. Pinocchio from Guillermo del Toro hit more than 600 locations. But there are a couple films, two Leslie, who had the controversial Best Actress nominee for Andrea Riceborough, had no reported domestic box office. So it would probably be ineligible if these new rule changes are adopted by the Academy. It's up for a vote at the end of the month. And then there's an Apple TV movie, Causeway, which was nominated for actor Brian Tyree Henry for supporting actor. It had no reported box office receipts either. So it probably wouldn't be eligible. But all those companies, Netflix, Amazon, Apple can pay to expand in more cities and locations. It's the smaller distributors that might have a real struggle uh, affording that because it could be the difference between profit and loss on a small film. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino, Monica Bushman, and Taylor Kaufman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. Listeners like you help make Retake possible, so please donate now at elias.com forward slash join. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com events. See you there.